This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, The Camp, to the cringe through the lens of disability. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I am thrilled to have you here. So what is on the examination table for this episode? I'm going to be looking at the 2018 film Hereditary, directed and written by Ari Aster. Hereditary is Ari Aster's feature film debut, and I actually covered his second film, Midsommar, in a previous episode, so be sure to go and check that out if you're interested. I honestly thought about doing them together, but I think there's enough different about each film in terms of how they approach various topics and themes related to disability that I thought that they kind of warranted their own episodes. That said, I am going to be focusing my conversation on the character of Charlie in this film. Obviously, Hereditary goes really heavy into themes around mental health, mental illness, and it's not my forte. If you want those kinds of conversations, I highly recommend checking out the Psychoanalysis podcast. But I think there's some robust um, bits that we can talk about with Charlie, obviously, but I will touch on very lightly the ideas of mental illness and how it kind of plays into this film, particularly related as a disability. So let's get into it and let's talk about Hereditary. Come on, Peter. There's your suit. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. Oh my God! She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. She wasn't altogether there. At the end. What's happening? Peter! Don't you ever raise your voice to me! I am your mother! Raise your hand! Mom, what's happening? Make it stop! Make it stop! 
just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Let's get into our plot synopsis. Miniature artist Annie Graham lives with her psychiatrist husband, Steve, their 16-year-old son, Peter, and their 13-year-old daughter, Charlie. The family attends the funeral of Annie's secretive mother, Ellen, and Annie is surprised by the number of people in attendance. Annie attends a bereavement support group, revealing she and her mother had a fraught relationship until Charlie was born, when Ellen became a significant figure in raising her. Meanwhile, Steve gets a phone call during a conversation with Annie, telling him that Ellen's grave was desecrated by unknown perpetrators, but he doesn't tell her. Peter is invited to a party, and Annie insists on Charlie going with him. On the way to the party, the siblings pass a telephone pole with an old sigil carved into it. At the party, Peter leaves Charlie unattended, and Charlie, who has a severe nut allergy, eats chocolate cake containing walnuts, and goes into anaphylactic shock. As Peter drives Charlie to the hospital, she leans out the window for air. When Peter swerves to avoid a dead deer, she is decapitated by the sigil telephone pole. In shock, Peter drives home and leaves Charlie's body in the car, where it is discovered by Annie the following morning. The family is fractured following Charlie's death. Peter becomes reclusive and wracked with guilt. Annie becomes angry and resentful towards Peter, and Steve tries to mediate peace between the two. Annie befriends support group member Joan. Joan teaches Annie to perform a seance to communicate with Charlie, and later that night, Annie convinces her family to attempt the seance. Objects begin to move and break, and Peter is petrified when Annie begins speaking in Charlie's frightened voice until Steve douses her with water. As Peter begins to be plagued by supernatural forces, Annie suspects Charlie's spirit has become malevolent. When she sees images in Charlie's sketchbook that appear to threaten Peter, she throws the book into the fireplace, but her clothes start to burn along with the book only extinguishing when she removes the book from the fire. Annie goes through her mother's old belongings and finds a photo album featuring pictures of Joan and Ellen together, despite Joan claiming that she never knew Annie's mother. Ellen is revealed to have been Queen Lay, the leader of an ancient witch coven. Annie also discovers a book with information about a demon king known as Payman, which states that King Payman wishes to inhabit the body of a male host and that the person who summoned the king of the demons will be given riches and rewards. Annie then finds Ellen's body in the attic along with occultist symbols. While Peter is outside his school, Joan appears and attempts to expel his spirit from his body for the demon king. In class, he is taken over by a strong unseen force and slams his head against his desk. Annie informs Steve of her discoveries and implores Steve to burn the sketchbook. When Steve accuses Annie of being unwell, Annie seizes the book and throws it into the fireplace. But as it burns, Steve erupts into flames. As Annie looks on, she becomes possessed by King Payman himself. 
Peter awakens to find his father's charred corpse by the fire and nude coven members in the house before a possessed Annie chases him into the attic. Peter watches Annie decapitate herself with a piano wire before diving out of the attic window to escape. As Peter lies on the ground, Payman possesses him and Annie's headless corpse levitates into Charlie's treehouse. The now possessed Peter follows his mother's body into the treehouse. There, he finds Joan, other coven members, and the headless corpses of his mother and grandmother, and Charlie's crowned, severed head resting atop a mannequin. Joan appears and places the crown upon Peter's head. She addresses him as Charlie, swears an oath to him as payment, and declares that he is now free to rule over the coven. As the cult members chant, Hail Payment, Peter stares blankly ahead. There are a couple of things that I think are worthwhile to touch on before we get into kind of the Charlie of it all. And the first place I want to start is with the title of the film, Hereditary. Now, like I mentioned in the intro, I don't want to go too deep into discussing the mental health aspects of this film because that goes deep and it's not my expertise and not something I feel really well equipped uh, to, to discuss, especially when there are other people that are and do. But I think it's useful to talk about the mental health aspects of this film as related to the title because I think it makes that nice connect to general disability themes and ideas. So I think that one of the things that is such a, a focal point in Astor's work is this idea of family. And the title, Hereditary, I think speaks specifically to the horror and fear related to what is passed along through our bloodlines. And this is both in terms of disease or illness or trauma. You know, there's been a lot more, uh, I think, conversations happening about generational trauma, both in, I think, terms of communities, but also in terms of families and the impacts that that has. But uh, let's talk specifically about how it plays out here in this film. As Annie is introducing herself at the support group, she really traces her family's history of mental illness. She talks about her father's depression and death by starvation. She talks about her brother's schizophrenia and his death by suicide. And she talks about, you know, the strain on her relationship with her mom kind of being associated with the uh, disassociative identity disorder and behavioral symptoms that are associated with dementia that she, I think, had expressed later in life, uh, especially because uh, Ellen was living with Annie and Annie's family in kind of her final, I think, maybe year 
it doesn't really specify, I don't think, how long she had been with them. But, you know, Annie was being a caregiver for her mom. And so the mental disorders that Annie mentions, depression, schizophrenia, have been studied and shown to have some type of perhaps genetic component to them, meaning that if you have a family history of individuals that are dealing with schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, there is perhaps a elevated chance that you could develop that as well. It's not a 100% thing, of course. It reminds me a lot of like the 23andMe kits. When you submit it, you can also get health information back. And it will tell you if you have tested uh, positive for certain genetic variants that put you at a higher risk of developing certain health issues. This is not a 100% foolproof test. And, and I think that the language that they use is pretty great. You know, it's it just means that maybe you're more likely to develop diabetes if this is something that you have a concern about, or if you have certain symptoms, it's important to use this as a jumping off point to talk to medical team, doctors, etc., to actually address your concerns and issues. There's going to be more extensive testing that will need to be done to see if you are at a heightened risk of developing these conditions, to see kind of where you are health-wise, this is just kind of a, a touch, a touching off point to have those conversations with professionals. And so uh, I, I find it interesting that in this film, you do have mental illness kind of standing in for a lot of different things that we fear are passed along to, uh, you know, further down our bloodline. Going back to the scene at the support group, Annie kind of wraps up her, her introduction by saying that she doesn't want to be a burden to her family, that that's really why she's there, is that, you know, she she wants a space to talk about this and she doesn't want to, uh, you know, zap her family anymore. And that's a really heartbreaking thing, but I think it speaks to a couple of different things. One, Annie has been a caregiver for her mom, so she's feeling burned out, probably tired, exhausted. You see kind of the flickers of that at the very beginning when they're going through the funeral and she's talking to Steve and, you know, everyone in the family is kind of like, should we, should we be feeling sadder about this? And no one, outside of Charlie, no one is really, you know, super grieved by the passing. It's hard to say. Complicated emotions and feelings come with the passing of a family member. It's never as clean cut as, you know, just immense and overwhelming sadness. People are complex and our relationships are complex. And so 
we have to process and go through a lot of different emotions. And this is especially true if you have been a caregiver for someone and they pass because that adds a lot of complexity to the relationships and it adds a lot of, I think, stress and worry and all of those things onto the person that's providing care. And of course, uh, you know, the care recipient as well, but it's just, it's really complex. And so I do like those moments where, you know, they're kind of feeling that out and saying, yeah, like it doesn't feel the same that she isn't here. There's definitely a loss, but I don't know. I feel like I should be sad. And Steve responds with, well, it will come, you know, it takes time to kind of sort through everything. So, you know, just take it step by step. But I think another component that is interesting about this as well is, you know, the line of, I don't want to, you know, be a burden to my family comes after she's laid out her own family history of mental illness. And I think that there's this awareness of, you know, is this now going to be me? Am I going to, you know, be the burden to my family that I've seen echoed, um, you know, by others? And is this something that I'm going to be passing along to my two children? There's that, I think there's that recognition of that too, which is kind of a natural fear of, you know, what, what do I pass to my kids and, and how do I help them deal with that if there are issues down the line? The next thing that I want to talk about in terms of stuff before we get to Charlie are the similarities to Midsommar in a couple of really specific ways. I watched these back to back and I was really struck by just some of the really specific similarities because I think, you know, you could really dig in to figure out what's, you know, really percolating in Ari Aster's mind in terms of, you know, kind of family struggle. I will say that one of the things that he's talked about with Hereditary is he's like, yeah, there's some kind of autobiographical elements to it, but he's like, it's not really necessarily a copy and paste situation. I'm going more off of feelings. So it's not like, you know, characters are stand-ins for someone in my life. It's more, you know, a way of me representing some of the issues that myself and my family experienced together. So I found that really interesting too. But family obviously plays a huge part in Astor's work. And in watching this with Midsommar, there were these really specific similarities. One boils down to family structure. So we're looking at two different families. We're looking at the Graham family here in Hereditary, and the Arter family in Midsommar. Both have four people, as far as we know and can tell. 
in Hereditary, we have Annie, Steve, Peter, Charlie, and in Midsommar, we have Danny, we have her sister Terry, and we have their parents. The younger sibling of the group, so Charlie in this film, and Terry in Midsommar have either physical or mental health issues that require additional care by their family and in some ways specifically their siblings. So I found that really interesting and I'll kind of circle back to that with Peter and Charlie here in a little bit. But I found that really fascinating. And then at the end, it's the eldest sibling of the family left standing with their new family, which is a cult. And they have, I guess in some ways, taken on a leadership role in the cult with Peter being the kind of reincarnation of King Payman. You have Danny as the May Queen, although I'm not really sure if May Queen is really kind of a position within the cult or if it's just kind of like a, a thing as part of the celebration. But, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go with the, with the theme there. But, you know, they're left standing. Their family is gone and now taken in by new families in a state of uh, kind of distress, but also kind of brainwashed and possessed, if you will. You know, we, that the end shot of Miss Omar with Danny smiling. She's not in a good place. She's been taken in. She's been effectively, I think, indoctrinated into the cult. We don't know how it's going to go for her, if she's actually going to be and, and stay a member or if she's going to die. We have no idea. But she's been kind of brainwashed, indoctrinated into the cult. Um, which I think is what that smile means at the end. And of course, it's very explicit here at the end of Hereditary with, you know, uh, King Payman inhabiting Peter. So, yeah, I, I found that really interesting that they both end on such a very specific, similar note. Um, yeah, so it's probably a, a lot to kind of take away from that, but... I don't know, something that I thought about, but not necessarily connected to disability, but, you know, interesting. But let's now talk about Charlie. And let's dig in and talk about her nut allergy. We get a sense from the very beginning of the film that this is a fairly severe allergy because her parents make sure that the candy bar that she pulls out at her grandma's funeral is not free. And they talk about having an EpiPen on them. Uh, or rather, not having the EpiPen on them. And this, of course, would lead us to believe that this is a pretty common practice. That they you know, always had that EpiPen on them. And again, really emphasizing that this is probably a severe allergy because this would be something that would be in place for anyone that has those types of severe allergies. You never want to be too far away from an EpiPen. I'm pretty sure 
I at least briefly brought up allergies in comparison to asthma when talking about Sheila from Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Master. Because of the sometimes demissive approach that these conditions get a lot of time. There's a really worthwhile piece by uh, Marissa Mirabal from Slash Film, and I think it's from 2019, that talks about hereditary in the context of disability representation in horror from 2018, and how Charlie's allergic reaction after eating the cake at the party is portrayed with a sense of realism, and that's given real stakes. This is necessary because we have to be scared, nervous, and panicked as both Peter and Charlie uh, get into that car. When she shows up, you know, at the door where he's upstairs hanging out with friends and she's talking about how she, uh, you know, is having some difficulty breathing, her throat is getting bigger. All of that, um, we, we really have to buy into it and we do because I think it's played with those heightened stakes and it's realistic you know <laughs> you're not taking an EpiPen with you because you just like to maybe give yourself a jab here and there you're doing it because you don't want to die you don't want to get really sick you don't want to have uh, an anaphylactic uh, attack so I she goes really really deep into the uh, realism in kind of discussing it. So I highly recommend that piece and I will link it in the show notes. It's a really great piece. It also talks about A Quiet Place, which I've talked about before on the pod. Absolutely love it. So really cool piece. Check it out. But really goes into amazing detail about the realism that is portrayed in the reaction that Trilly has and, you know, how it's the centerpiece of the film in a lot of ways. Now shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about something that's a little unpleasant and I'll, I'll kind of explain it, but I want to talk about Charlie's appearance in the film. Aster took someone's physical differences associated with their disability and highlighted or emphasized them for an added creepiness factor. A lot of the promo materials play on this further by having us think that she's going to be the evil or sinister force of the story, but it obviously plays out much differently. Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, has a condition called uh, cleidocranial dysplasia, or CCD. This is a rare genetic condition affecting the development of teeth and bones. Bones can be incredibly fragile or formed differently, and some bones, like collarbones, may be entirely absent. Millie has shared in interviews and on her TikTok about the wild comments she received about her appearance in the film, and it just isn't great. It feels really exploitative on the part of Aster, honestly, and the hate that Millie received and was left to deal with on her own is garbage, especially because she's just a kid. It just feels really shitty and it, I think, has had some kind of impact 
on Millie as well. I mean, I think she's doing great. She's striving and thriving. Her TikTok is wonderful. She makes music. She's doing lots of cool things. Uh, she does these absolutely stellar makeup looks. Just really cool stuff. I'm happy that she is doing all of these wonderful things and I don't think that she feels angry about it but it just sucks that as a kid she was left to deal with that on her own and I say on her own I'm sure she had support but it's just really really shitty and I don't I don't like it you know I think any kid that looks different because of their disability has been you know bullied because of it we've been teased taunted the whole shebang and it doesn't feel good and to have that happen on such, I think, uh, a public stage has got to be just crushing. Now, I do want to end this on a bit of a positive note before I get too ranty and ravey and angry. And kind of give you a fun fact here. So, another person that has CCD is Gaten Bonarazzo from... Stranger Things, and he and Millie actually know each other from Broadway. They were both on Broadway as young kids, knew each other because as Millie explains, you know, if you're a kid on Broadway, you kind of know every other kid. And he invited her to come to a, uh, I think, event that an organization he works with uh, regarding CCD was holding. And so she thought I was pretty cool, and I don't know if they're necessarily friends, but, um, you know, that's a little fun fact for you. But I don't think that Millie has talked a lot about having CCD, but I know that Gaten has, uh, you know, been really vocal about his experiences and has become a bit of an advocate and has done some great awareness work. So, you know, if you want to learn more, you can always, you know, check some stuff out. I'll uh, post a couple of links in the show notes for organizations that uh, do some advocacy work if you want to learn a little bit more. All right, so I want to wrap things up by talking a little bit about the relationship between Peter and Charlie because I really like their sibling dynamic. They seem to have a pretty caring, normal little sister big brother relationship and it's what makes her death I think especially impactful because if they didn't have any kind of dynamic it would really I think make everything else in the film less poignant so I like that you have these moments of you know just a, a caring sibling relationship a dynamic between them he doesn't hesitate to go and get her help he isn't annoyed that he has to leave the party he's concerned about his sister he's scared for her he wants to get her to the hospital he doesn't you know get mad at her on the way to the party because she's coming along because the mom is kind of making him bring her he doesn't take that out on her because he knows it's not her problem she didn't really want to go to begin with, but I love just kind of the 
the really natural back and forth that they seem to have um, during this party scene. When someone at the party says something disparaging about Charlie's artwork, he doesn't really continue the conversation in that way. He kind of, you know, shuts it down with, yeah, sounds like my sister, and leaves it at that. Um, so I like that, you know, it's an, a, not an antagonistic relationship. It's kind of refreshing to see, especially, I think, in horror, because I, we do get a lot of those siblings at war type relationships. I also think about the line that Charlie has that night after the funeral of Ellen, where, you know, she's getting tucked into bed by Annie, and she is obviously shaken up by the death of her grandma and says, you know, who's going to take care of me? And Annie says, well, I am. Charlie says, yeah, but when you die. And Annie says, well, your dad, your brother. And I think that that's something that really stood out to me because, as I've mentioned before, being disabled you do have to think through those things and sometimes you're thinking through them at pretty young ages well what happens if you know my mom isn't here to give me my shot how do i how do i do this how you know who's going to be there for me who's going to be my support system because i know i need it and i like that both that self-awareness on charlie's part i suppose but you know i like that annie answered it by saying, yeah, and your brother. Your brother's part of, you know, the team as well. And that is something that, as I've mentioned, I think in the sibling episode I did a while back, especially for folks born with disabilities, you do, if you have siblings, they do become part of that care team. And if you have ongoing chronic lifelong conditions, you know, once your parents become, you know, too old or, or, you know, they pass and they're not there to take care of you, often a lot of that care will then go to, you know, a sibling. We see something similar in Midsommar with Danny and Terry. Danny is obviously at least part of the, the care team, if not one of the primary caregivers for her sister who has bipolar disorder. Now, when I say caregivers, you know, this doesn't mean that you're helping do um, activities of daily living. It's not always that super direct hands-on type of care. It's checking in. It's making sure that your loved one is going to their doctor's appointments, taking care of themselves, taking their medications, all of those things. And obviously, Danny is super involved in that process with her sister. And so you see some kind of similarities there. And I think, you know, it probably speaks to maybe an experience that Arya's had himself. So uh, I, I think it's done really well in both films. And I think that kind of wraps everything up that I have to say about Hereditary. Um, I, I mean, you can talk about this film for hours upon hours. There's so much to, I think, piece apart in a lot of different ways but I don't know I find this film really interesting it's I think it's great 
I like Midsommar a little bit more. I know that's maybe a weird take, but I I think they're both really exceptional. I'm looking forward to uh, Aster's next film, which I think should be coming out fairly soon. I haven't heard much about it recently, but I know that he said it was going to be more of a horror comedy, which with Aster can mean a whole lot of different things. So, because I, I think there's a lot of really, uh, some really pointed moments of humor in both Hereditary and Midsommar. So I'm 100% on board with whatever he brings to the table. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of does it. As always, thank you so much for listening, for being here. I appreciate it greatly. Be sure to subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad feed wherever you're listening to the uh, podcast. I'm sure you already are, but you know, got to do the housekeeping, got to do the due diligence there. Um, always really grateful for the amazing team behind Anatomy of a Scream and all of the members of the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad fam. Just delightful and I feel really, really honored to be part of that group. So make sure you're subscribed, listen to all of the great shows that are currently kind of going pretty hot on the network. You've got White Ladies in Crisis, Alter Tapes, uh, Good For Her, lots of good stuff. So you won't want to miss out. And if you want to reach out to me, you can always do so by shooting me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.